Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the start of a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I don't know if there are others of you out there who felt like I did on a Friday night. Um, we, we had known all day Friday that the Memphis police were going to release um, video of the beating that took the life of Tyree Nichols. We knew at 7 o'clock Eastern time that video would be broadly available and would immediately be shown on cable news networks and online. You could find it everywhere. But but the reason I mentioned what I just said about not knowing if there are others of you out there who were like me, I, I had to wait. I really felt like I had to steal myself because we had been uh, led to understand just how horrifying uh, this beating really was. And I found I couldn't watch it until Saturday morning, and it really took me a lot of um, effort to realize that it was crucial that I did look at it. Well, I did. Um, and it was worse, I think, for many of us than we ever possibly expected it, it might be. So um, in many ways, it was a very sobering and sad weekend around that. And then, of course, we also got the video of the attack on Paul Pelosi beaten with a hammer, which was also stunning and difficult to watch. So I, I say all that um, because I think we've learned a lot this weekend about violence uh, among some police officers, among some unhinged individuals in the Paul Pelosi case. And um, the question is, what do we do about all of this? We'll talk about that. We'll talk about how Georgia reacted, both uh, people who were protesting against police violence as well as how state officials handled uh, their concerns there might be violence in uh, Georgia. Um, and we have a lot more uh, going on this week in politics. So let's get right to introducing our panel. It's Monday, which means my partner on the show is AJC political reporter and columnist Patricia Murphy, the author of Political Insider, which you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. And of course, Patricia also oversees The Jolt at AJC.com. Patricia, I'm so glad you're with us this morning. Thank you for being here. Hi, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. Um, we're joined today as well by former state Senator Jen Jordan, who all of you know was Democratic candidate for attorney general in the last election cycle and actually um, in, in, in a seat cycle in which Republicans won all the state constitutional officers. Uh, I think I'd, I always say this, I think you won more votes than any other Democrat on the state uh, uh, constitutional uh, uh, ticket, right, Jen? Yeah, I'd like to say I was the biggest loser, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have to say, look, I, I obviously you wanted to be attorney general, but I'm glad we have you back on Political Rewind. We didn't have candidates on during the elections, and so um, although 
I, I know winning would have been a much bigger deal than being on Political Rewind. I'm glad you're back with us. <laughs> well, this is a lot more fun, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tammy Greer is with us, pr- professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. How are you, Tammy? I'm good, Bill. Thank you for having me this morning. And I'm awfully glad that we're joined by Eric Tannenblatt, who has been a longtime Republican insider in Georgia. I always kind of go back and recount the fact that Eric years ago worked with uh, Paul Coverdale, the former state legislator and then U.S. senator, then the head of the Peace Corps. Eric uh, went on to be uh, Sonny Perdue's chief of staff in Perdue's first term as governor. And then Eric has, for a very long time, had worked uh, on the presidential efforts of the Bushes, George H.W., George W., Jeb Bush in 2016. And um, I uh, I always want to point out your involvement in the 2012 uh, campaign uh, when you were deeply involved in that presidential effort as well. So all that said, Eric, thank you for being here. Happy to be here. All right, let's let's start by talking about um, first what we saw Friday night and and our thoughts about what it means in terms of while this was an incident involving five Memphis police officers, I think most people are reacting by saying it was another example that there are issues in how police handle confrontations particularly with people of color. Do you believe that's a fair assessment as a starting point, Patricia? Um, Yes, and I think it goes beyond problems. I mean, there's just something Mm. deeply wrong to see this kind of an event unfold on camera when we know that by law people have protections um, of their rights uh, if they are interacting with police. Um, And uh, we also know that police are under an immense amount of stress, but something like this unfolding just tells you there's something deeply wrong, not just with the laws, but with society. It's just, there's almost no way to get around that. Tammy, um, I'm wondering if, uh, as you watch that video, you're at at a university, that has a preponderance of black students. And I'm wondering how you expect it going into class, uh, the, the conversations that are likely to come out of what everybody saw Friday night. Um, I think it's interesting because the conversation in class um, goes usually the same way, um, where this is sad, this is tragic, this is, you know, Uh, indicative of racial disparity um, and the criminalization and dehumanization of Black bodies in this country. It also, though, goes to um, what some of us view as trauma porn, where the, the traumatizing event of a Black body played on the news over and over and over and over again. Um, It is uh, it, it's sad and frustrating for those that can identify with these individuals that are killed by police. Um, yet I try to inform my students that this is important for people whose this this is not their daily experience. So for them to see 
the, these types of actions. And then to be able to ask questions like all of this for a traffic stop or a perceived traffic stop because we aren't really clear um, because the body cam video did not begin uh, with the, the start of the traffic stop. Um, yet and still all of this for a traffic stop. Um, and hopefully, you know, there could be at some point some belief that there is over criminalization legislation on the state level. And that um, when it comes to um, law enforcement, that there is a balance where the black community, um, Asian community, the Latinx community are not opposed to policing. It is how policing is done. And if we can get to that nuanced conversation, rather than people going to their corners, perhaps we can move forward with what Patricia just said and what you said, Bill, about changing the way that we view society and all of us, all citizens therein. Eric, weigh in. Well, look, I, I don't disagree with anything that's been said. I mean, this was just um, horrific. And I think Patricia's point of societal problems, this is this is a big problem. And uh, unfortunately, incidents like this uh, provoke the discussion we're having, which, you know, I'm hopeful can be uh, constructive. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of specific things, you know, as you uh, sort of reflect on what we just saw related to um, how did these police officers get hired? You know, what what was the process that they went through? Uh, that that sort of ran through my mind. And of course, you know, we're talking here in Atlanta about the Atlanta Police Training Set, um, uh, Center. You know, what ran through my mind is what kind of training did they have? And, and so it, it opened up a, a lot of questions, but but that's not to minimize the the deep rooted societal issues that uh, Patricia uh, raised, um, uh, you know, earlier. Jen, did did I, I'm I'm curious whether you like me found that it was very difficult to steel yourself to watch what had happened uh, in that stop. It is because in a lot of ways, every time we see it. It, there's like a normalization of the violence and it becomes just kind of part of everyday occurrence for us. And it can't, I mean, that that's, that's the big issue. I mean, it, it was a horrific video. Um, I will say this to just to piggyback a little bit on what Eric was saying in terms of training. I think one of the issues we really need to look at, of course, racial inequities and all of that stuff, right? But in terms of training, really kind of the military approach um, that police have adopted where as opposed to thinking about protecting and serving the community, the members of the community really become part of the enemy, right? Like when you're in a military, there's an enemy that you are going after. And and, and so I, I think by, by kind of doing all of this militarization of the police forces, I think we're really seeing that kind of play out in terms of just everyday, um, you know, interactions between police and citizens. Um, you know, Patricia, uh, uh, to pick up on what Jen is talking about there, um, we know that the Memphis uh, police involved in this incident were part of the so-called Scorpion Unit, which has now been uh, disbanded, and that their mission, uh, among other things, was 
they were dealing with the fact that Memphis had a lot of um, crime that's not dissimilar to what we're dealing with in Atlanta these days. Um, A lot of gang activity in the streets, uh, fights among gang members, uh, 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 car Cars uh, drag racing, uh, doing stunts on public streets. All of that led to the creation of this unit, which was set out to crack down on all of this. Um, And obviously these five cops went way too far. But it does seem it's a cautionary note for here in Georgia when you have a Governor Kemp who has said, you know, cracking down on gangs uh, making sure that violent crime uh, can be addressed in 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 the most effective ways possible. Uh, it it does seem this is a cautionary note. Um. Yes, this is the kind of activity we've seen in Atlanta, Washington D.C., New York City, Memphis, um, it, any large city. It seems like, and even small cities um, are experiencing this. I think social media has a lot to do with that. Some of these things are performative, particularly when you talk about street racing. Um, but then there's just also a concentration of available guns, um, of uh, of uh, particularly during COVID, just empty streets. Uh, people with a lot of time on their hands created the opportunity for these things to kind of bloom. Um, but you compound that with gang activity um, and you have just this really serious, almost intractable problem. Um, I do think Tammy's point is so important that um no community doesn't want police to address crime in their neighborhoods. And we heard that all over the campaign trail, no matter what group we were talking to. And I would say Black communities in particular have concerns because sometimes they're the ones that are that need it most um, to have a, a positive police presence to keep um, citizens safe in their own neighborhoods. Um, but it just has to be done in in a way that is um, for the community and not against the community. Um, something that I've been struck by with the Memphis situation is how quickly um, the Memphis police and the city of Memphis have been communicating. I think there have been some lessons learned in the past. These officers were fired, charged. Their photos were released very quickly. The video was released not as quickly. I think they were working on a communications plan to find the right time to do that. It ends up there is no right time to do that except just to do it. Um, uh, Governor Kemp announced very quickly, uh, and I think it had more to do with Memphis than Atlanta, that he had put the National Guard on standby. I think leaders are um, working to um, over-communicate and in some ways over-prepare to be ready to prevent sort of a spiraling of violence from these terrible, terrible incidents. But the, the main problem is we cannot get these terrible incidents to stop happening. Um, there's legislation that's been proposed in Congress. It, of course, didn't get through. Um, I think with a Democratic Senate and a Republican House, it's going to be even more difficult. And so um, it's very hard to see where the solution is. Eric, you mentioned the Atlanta Police Training Center, which obviously we've talked about on this show frequently in the last week since the tremendous escalation in violence there. Um, and and 
there's a sense in which, first of all, I do want to get to in a few minutes the fact that although leaders like Governor Kemp, like Mayor Andre Dickens in Atlanta, were prepared to deal with possible violence in the aftermath of the Memphis uh, video release, it didn't happen. We had peaceful demonstrations throughout the weekend, which is something I think we can all feel uh, relieved about. Uh, But go back to the police training center. There's a sense in which it strikes me that um, the protesters there, uh, they look at what Jen Jordan just talked about. Is this center uh, going to extend the notion of the militarization of police forces? What kind of training do police officers expect they're going to get there? And, and it strikes me that this is a moment at which we all need to understand how our police trained uh, to deal with street stops, with all of the event, all the possible situations in which they can be confronted uh, uh, with uh, situations that could lead to an excess of violence. A Rayshard Brooks uh, instance, for instance, and and we don't really know exactly what that's all about, Eric. Yeah, and you know we don't know what kind of training would you know I don't, we shouldn't conclude that the uh, police training center in Atlanta is going to uh, um, you know teach military style training. I don't think that's what is going to happen. No, no, I, episode, I I agree, but you yeah. understand why the protesters might come to that conclusion after what they see in Memphis. Sure, and I think that you know education uh, can solve a lot of problems, and you know maybe something for you to consider is to get. Uh, someone from the Atlanta Police Foundation who's intimately involved to talk about this, or some experts that can talk about uh, police training. But I don't, I don't want to take away from something Patricia mentioned too about um, the response of uh, officials, because I think that that really set the tone for what's just transpired the last week. I mean, I, I applaud the police chief in Memphis because she was so forthright. The way that she uh, immediately fired those police officers, the way she was very transparent with the public. And yes, Governor Kemp did issue an executive order, but I think it was more, I think Governor Kemp and Mayor Dickens, uh, they they sort of set the tone. I mean, I saw Friday night before, I was, so may have seen it, before the video was actually released, the mayor put out on Twitter a video in anticipation of what we were all going to watch. And, and I think that that really demonstrates leadership when your leaders can talk to the community and you know have a conversation with them. And I think that that I think the way that they handled things had a lot to do with um, why there were peaceful protests. It didn't get violent, but it all goes back to what started in Memphis with the uh, police chief. Jen. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it took a lot of work. I mean, the most work happens when you don't see it, right? And so what Patricia was saying in terms of communications, too, was so incredibly important. I mean, because behind the scenes, what's being communicated so that everybody's on the same page, right? Whether we're talking about state or the city, the mayor or the governor, that we all have this, we're we're, we're stepping forward together. But even apart from that, like the mayor's office reaching out to various community groups um, and really 
trying to be as transparent as possible. And I do think at first when I saw the emergency order that was entered, I was concerned. Mm. But then I saw that it was just for Governor Kemp was saying they're going to be on standby. I thought that was super important, too, that it wasn't just a thousand, you know, folks going into the street you know, uh, dressed in riot gear. So it it really was a balance, but I think it also shows you that when um, you have leaders who talk to each other and are working together, um, that you really can have more positive results and at least maybe keep people from getting hurt, which is, you know, really, really important. Tammy? So um, I just want to say that when I, I looked up the stats for Memphis, um, because I was curious about, you know, the the when I hear that there's violence and there's um, this crime, I'm, I'm curious as to what that looks like from a policing standpoint. And so according to policescorecard.org, um, you know, 72% of the people who had deadly force used against them by police were either unarmed or it was alleged that they had a firearm and they did not. Um, that the majority of the um, arrests were for low level arrests, which does not include drug possession or violent crime. Um, and I also see on you know this dashboard that 64% of Memphis is a Black population. 85% of those arrested um, are Black as well, and 64%, the exact same number of the, the population that is uh, killed in a, by police um, is also Black. So I think that especially looking at the number of arrests and for what kinds of crimes, these are arrests and um deadly interactions that are for nonviolent offenses. And I think it's important for us to be mindful of that, that again, a traffic stop led to five officers being charged, yet there were many more on the scene um, that, you know, it, it had to, it became violent for a nonviolent stop. And I think that when we talk about the uh, governor's reaction or the mayor's reaction to and 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 a deadly interaction in another city that is close to Atlanta, while I can appreciate the proactive nature to ensure public safety, perhaps the communication about we're going to get a thousand National Guard to be on standby at the the same day that a violent video came out, I perhaps someone on the communication staff could have revisited the manner, the words, the the tone of that particular communication because it can appear as though a, an unfettered constitutional um, access to firearms under the Second Amendment based on your interpretation is okay. Yet when it comes to the First Amendment, and the ability for citizens to gather under assembly to petition their government and to have speech, there is, um, uh, th there's, it, it depends on, on how that takes place. So while I can appreciate all of this in the conversation, um, it can appear 
though that there is an insensitivity and a lack of First Amendment abilities in former Confederate states when it comes to these interactions by police, particularly when it comes to black individuals. Um, that it, what you just said takes a lot. I, I, I'm thinking about it and thinking I've got to absorb that because I think what you just said it has a lot of um, nuance and implications. So thank you uh, for that. Patricia, before we leave the subject, um, I want to read something that A.O. Tony Scott, A.O. Scott from the New York Times wrote. He's Tony's been on this show uh, before and, um, you know, he's their film critic. Uh, so he has particular sensitivity to video, to film. Um, and, 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 and it kind of relates to something that Tammy said at the very beginning, which is um, there's a balance. How are we uh, looking at video like this? Are we desensitized entirely? Are we looking at it as almost like violent porn, as Tammy suggested? And here's what Tony said. Raw video offers clarity, transparency, and perhaps accountability a chance for citizens to understand unvarnished truth about what happened on the night of January 7th. Concerned Americans should become witnesses after the fact. Our senses shocked, our consciences awakened by the sight of uniformed officers repeatedly kicking and punching Mr. Nichols. I expect you to feel what the Nichols family feels, the Memphis police chief said in anticipation of the video's impact. Her appeal to common humanity expressed faith in the power of even the most horrific images to foster empathy and community. And then he said something I thought was really interesting, too. In insisting that the world had saw what had been done to her son, Rovon Wells, Mr. Nichols' mother, recalled Mamie Till Mobley, who in 1955 placed the disfigured body of her murdered son, Emmett, in an open, open coffin, so the viciousness of the racists who killed him could not be denied. I, I thought all of that is worthy of consideration. Yes, and I think, you know, if there's a piece of that video that is so difficult to watch beyond the violence, it is when he is calling up for his mother. It is just yeah. so heartbreaking. And the same thing happened with George Floyd. And you just think as a mom, you know, as a mom raising children in this society, and I'm raising white children, I can't even imagine for a black mother, um, these videos, it's a balance between being witness to it, but then seeing this intimate moment that is just gonna break his mother's heart a thousand times a day. So it's it's just something you just pray we can help each other with um, and help our city with. So before we leave this subject and take a break, Jen, I'm gonna, I, I have a hard question for you. What do you think we uh, as individuals, but also our legislature, our, our law enforcement agencies, what can we learn uh, from yet another example of the violence against a black man and what it means in terms of how we, how law enforcement uh, deals with the people that it is supposed to police? No, I mean, I think it goes back to what Patricia said. Like when you watch this, I mean, it, he's a human being. He's he's loved. He's a young man. He's got everything 
in front of them. And we've just reduced it to talking points and, and, and don't really appreciate the humanity that's involved. And I think politically we have got to, it can't be an either or situation. I mean, you know, Tammy said that earlier, these are very nuanced conversations and there's no one size fits all, um, you know, solution. But we, the first thing is, if we're not talking to each other, then we can't solve hard problems. And we're just going to kind of, we're going to keep seeing this again and again. Thank you. Eric? Yeah, the only thing that I would just add is um, that, you know, we need not let this be forgotten. We tend to have discussions and react to things in the moment, and then we move on to something else until, unfortunately, the next thing happens. And so I hope that uh, this is a reminder that these are real issues and they need to be addressed and people need to, you know, continue to work on them. And Tammy, finally, you, what, by the way, what Eric just said was echoed by uh, another New York Times writer, Charles Blow, who said that even in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd, we all forgot about police reform. And he includes even Black Lives Matter as letting things drop. And he says America should be ashamed it abandoned the issue of police reform. Uh, I agree. And uh, I, I would hope that, um, I, I, I constantly hope that after these incidents, after we see them, um, that that would be the driving force and the continuing force for us to really want to push. However, I think the nuance gets lost in the sauce and people go to their corners. Um, either you back the blue or you're for defunding the police, um, which is unfair to um, the parents, the loved ones, the children of, of people that are murdered. All right. Um, we got to take a break. Uh, we're going to come back and we have a lot of other um stories in the news to talk about. So we'll do that in just a moment on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Eric Tannenblatt, Jen Jordan, Tammy Greer, Patricia Murphy with us for today's Political Rewind. One, one last note, Patricia, that I don't want to let go completely, and then I, I do want to move on. Um, and I think Jen said it well. You know, uh, it, it, it's an important development for the state of Georgia and for people in metro Atlanta that um, Governor Kemp and Andre Dickens were able to come together and work out how uh, they would deal with this crisis, including uh, Governor Kemp's uh, uh, putting a thousand National Guard troops on standby. I, I, I think the fact that they are finding ways to work together it's we're at the end of an era in which uh, former Mayor Bottoms and Kemp were were never able to cooperate. And I think that's the one one of the things that comes out of this, that we should all feel some sense of hope around. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, I think it has a lot to do with Mayor Dickens um, 
approach to relationships with state leaders since literally the minute he got elected, he started calling leaders the very next day. I mean, before he was sworn in, I mean, on uh, the November after, I guess it was December by then, um, the day after he was elected, he picked up the phone, called David Ralston, started calling other state leaders. He um, has been known to be waiting in the anti-rooms of state lawmakers, uh, waiting to go into meetings. He's met with Governor Kemp many times. He's met with the new lieutenant governor. He met with the old lieutenant governor. He has lawmakers down to um, the uh, down to City Hall as well. He has worked very, very hard, very quickly to open the lines of communication between the city and the state. I think that was driven initially because of the Buckhead City threat. I think he knew he he was elected, and bam, job number one was to keep the General Assembly from passing a bill to allow a vote on Buckhead City. Um, however, I think what has spun off of that are these ongoing relationships that he works very hard to maintain. I think the lawmakers were open to that as well after having such so much friction with Mayor Bottoms. Um, and so I'm not surprised that they uh, were working together, coordinating. They don't always agree, but I think Dickens gets a lot of credit for really working those relationships all the time. And then when you have a crisis like this, you can go back and rely on those. Well, Eric, um, Patricia just gave me a great uh, segue to talk about another story that uh, uh, popped up in the news this weekend. Um, and that's that the leaders down there at the uh, Capitol are so far saying they kind of want to avoid hot button uh, cultural issues. They want to work on meat and potatoes matters, um, you know, workforce development, all of that sort of thing. Uh, the governor wants to give back a lot of money to taxpayers, whatever. Um, but Eric, Patricia mentioned Buckhead, and there's one of those hot-button issues, the, the, the people, the movement to uh, uh, create a separate city. Uh, are, are, you in are you in the middle of your term now as head of the Buckhead Coalition? Well, I actually just started. And so the okay. event that uh, Patricia was alluding to was the annual uh, Buckhead Coalition launch. And I should compliment uh, Jen, who represented Buckhead uh, for many years. And uh, we had a chance to work together on this particular issue in the last session. Um, you know, I, I do think things have calmed down as it relates to the uh, initial impetus to people in Buckhead, you know, wanting to form its own city. I mean, there's still a, a group of, of people that are advocating for the issue, but, you know, all the polling data shows that uh, people have changed their view. And a lot of that is based on results. Um, crime has been down 14% uh, this year and 14% last year. Uh, all of the statistics are showing that things are safer uh, in Buckhead. And I will give uh, the mayor um, a lot of credit for that. He has worked really hard, as, as Patricia said, from the day he got elected, reaching out to state leaders. But it's not just building the relationship with state leaders, which, which mind <laughs> you, go beyond just dealing with the public safety issue. I mean, there's a lot of economic development issues. I mean, Atlanta. Atlanta is economic engine for the state of Georgia. And so, you know, you want to have good city and state relationships. But I also think that uh, state lawmakers and the governor are seeing uh, actual 
um, progress being made. I mean, the mayor, if you go down, there's a whole laundry list, even from opening a, a police precinct in the middle of the Buckhead Village. And the governor and the mayor both appeared at the opening of that. Uh, there's a reduction in 911 times. There's more police cameras in the community. Uh, so you can go down a laundry list. And so these are actual things that have happened. And I think that speaks louder than words to maybe some skeptical lawmakers. And I think that they're, they want to see this mayor continue on the path that he's on and give him more time. And that's why I think that issue just doesn't have seem to have a whole lot of steam in the legislature. I, I wouldn't be surprised if someone introduces a bill on behalf of that small group of people. My guess it'll be a legislator from outside of Atlanta, but it doesn't seem like any of the legislators from Atlanta have any interest in it. Well, Jen Jordan, we can talk to you about two issues that are uh, the hot button cultural issues that could come up. One of them, Eric just gave you credit for working with him on fending off the Buckhead cityhood movement. But we have to remember, should it come up, uh, the Lieutenant Governor, Bert Jones, in fact campaigned on a pledge to do all he could to push forward the Buckhead City movement. So you're welcome to comment on that. But we should also say that there are questions that while legislative leaders say they are not eager to do anything more about adding more restrictions to Georgia's current abortion law, which was an issue when you were in the Senate that gained you national attention for the fierceness with which you fought against it, you never can tell whether or not something's going to come up and a push by conservatives will, in fact, give it some leg. So comment on all of that, if you don't mind. Are you are muted? You muted somehow, Jen? We don't hear you. There I am. You would think I'd know how to do this by now. In terms of Lieutenant <laughs> Governor Burt Jones and his prior or past support for Buckhead City, look, um, the Lieutenant Governor is ambitious and is looking toward the future. Um, and so my guess is he is going to make the political calculation that he needs Atlanta <laughs> You know, if he is going to have a successful four years as lieutenant governor, because really we are so interconnected um, economically and socially and culturally. And you just can't say, you know, I'm going to be anti-Atlanta and think that you're going to be a successful statewide um, elected officer. Um, secondarily, in terms of abortion or whatever they want to file, there's going to be lots of stuff that's filed this year. Um, but I think. My guess is with the governor having one reelection, um, he's going to be less inclined to, you know, put up with any kind of stuff from the silly season. But we'll see. I mean, we've got a lot of young um, Republican electeds that are in leadership now that don't have seasoning or experience with respect to it. And they're they're throwing some pretty sharp elbows down there with each other. Um, so I think at the end of the day, uh, I, my guess is, uh, you know, the crazy clown car will come out at some point before uh, we gavel out. <laughs> Tammy, your thoughts? <laughs> I, I agree uh, with everyone that, you know, Atlanta is the economic engine and I can understand how um, 
you know, the state overall can feel neglected if a lot of focus is on one particular city. And so it can be frustrating for everyone else in, in the state thinking, hey, we're productive too. We have something to add um, to the image of Georgia as well. And so um, I think this is part of the reason why you see so many companies moving into the suburban and um, rural areas mm -hmm. in order to expand the economics and their voices um, when it comes to some of these matters. So I, again, going back to the previous conversation, um, it, it's, it's not as if Atlanta can survive without Georgia and Georgia can survive without Atlanta. So if we can get to some happy medium and have everyone to play nicely in the sandbox, perhaps we can move forward more aggressively as a state. You know, Patricia, it does make sense. Oh, yeah, go ahead. You just go. Don't even wait for a question from me. I want to hear your thoughts. <laughs> oh, I was on mute now also. You're... Shoot. <laughs> the producers are like, what? Why can't these people figure it out? Um, so I wanted to say, Bill, when you were opening the conversation to say it looks like things are going to be quiet down at the state capitol, Jen Jordan's face was like, sure it is. <laughs> because <laughs> a theme I have noticed among state leaders this session is that they're saying they don't have any plans to push divisive issues. That's not on their radar. But they, but you know, from the speaker to the new lieutenant governor to other leaders we've heard from, they said, but if a leader, if a member brings it up, we'll have to see what they say. We'll have to see what the caucus thinks about it. We'll have to see where it goes. So it will just be so instructive to see who has the inclination and the ability to shut down certain issues if they don't want them to get a hearing. Um, but because this is such early days, and particularly the speaker and the lieutenant governor and the Senate majority leader's tenure, um, they really need to also be building their goodwill inside their own caucus and make it feel like it's a place where members can come and bring their ideas and have a hearing. So this is a really interesting, important time to not only look at the issues but of what is coming forward, but what's not coming forward. And when that changes, why does it change? Well, Patricia, uh, we've mentioned on this time, on this show a number of times, uh, just in reference to what you said, the fact that during the debates in the gubernatorial campaign season, Governor Kemp gave two different answers when asked about whether he would support uh, more restrictions on abortion. In the first debate, when asked that question, he said, I have no intention of trying to expand uh, uh, the, the restrictions. In the second debate, he essentially said that, but then followed it up by saying, but of course, and this is exactly what you were just referring to, he said, I if I will listen to what the members of the legislature bring forward and have to give some uh, consideration to that, right? Yes. Absolutely. And if you look at other state legislatures that are gaveling in right now, a lot of those legislatures are not so slow to heat up. Um, in Arizona, they're already considering um, bills about transgender students. Can a teacher say a child's new chosen name if the parents don't know about it? Um, can, a, can a state um, ban minor transgender surgeries? Um, these are already happening. They're 
laws in other legislatures looking at abortion medication by mail? Is there a way to stop that if it's um, if there's a ban in your state, but women are still trying to order medication through the mail? Is, what can they do about that? So I, I do. I, while all seems quiet on the front right now, I think that there are there will be other legislatures moving things that will give um, impetus to more changes or more potential changes here as well. Eric, before I got to get to a break, let's I want to go to back to Ginger's <laughs> description of the crazy clown car of the right wing and how they could get involved in this session. Look, you have been a solid kind of mainstream Republican for a very long time. And it strikes me that I'd like to get your thoughts on how much you would like to see this session unfold without more legislation that deals with trans Georgians, that deals with even further restrictions on abortion, with those issues that push your party so far to the right? Well, sure. I mean, I would I would like not to have those issues, but the reality is, is you have a lot of people in the rank and file, you know, members that aren't in leadership, <clears throat> uh, that that's a, a way for them uh, to get some attention. They pick an issue, and I, and I have to believe it's an issue that they're passionate about. And, you know, and the more controversial it is, the more curb coverage it's going to get. Uh, and so that that's just, you know, you, you have to depend on your leadership. And I think, it, it you know, looking at Speaker Burns and um, uh, the Lieutenant Governor and the Senate President Pro Tem and the Majority Leader, it just looks like the leadership is being very mature in in these early days, and and look, Governor Kemp has become a national figure. I mean, people are watching him uh, from afar. There was just an article in the Cook Political Report on Friday by Amy mm -hmm. Walters that was sort of talking about him being the dark horse in the upcoming presidential race. Why there's talk of you know the governor of Florida and the governor of Virginia watch Governor Kemp. So people are watching Georgia. Um, all right. Yes, yes, they certainly are. Uh, by the way, though, uh, David Ralston, Eric, was a mature leader as well. He didn't really want a six-week heartbeat abortion law, but he ended up being pressured into it by conservatives in the party and by all of those Republican conservatives out there who were constituents uh, who did. So we'll watch and see how that all unfolds. Got to get to the final break of the show. Back with more in a moment. <music> Patricia Murphy, <clears throat> excuse me, the AJC's polling last week, you've been uh, putting out little bits and pieces of it uh, for a number of days now. And uh, I was really intrigued by the uh, data that you guys put out this morning, which was about how Georgians felt about the midterm elections. And it's fascinating that after 2020, when confidence in the elections really took a major dip, that the poll by the University of Georgia for the AJC found that 73% of the respondents thought the election was fair and accurate, 87% of liberals were confident in uh, the results of the election. Uh, that's striking considering 
all of the controversy over SB202. Yes, we'd love for those numbers to be higher, wouldn't you? You know, we would love 99% to 100%. Um, but I think it has a lot to do with the candidates who uh, won and also the candidates who lost, who conceded their races, who even Herschel Walker, we were not sure he was going to concede that race, but they, everybody who uh, lost their race came out and said, I, you know, I, I did my best. I didn't win. That is so important. And the decision by Donald Trump in 2020 to um, not only uh at the time say he won, but then to continue to say it and even say it as recently as last weekend, this past weekend in South Carolina, say he won the election, um, that just burrows itself down into his supporters' minds. Um, Republicans did a lot of um, messaging after SB 202 to say, hey, look, now everything's fine, even though there was no fraud that uh, sort of necessitated that bill. That did seem to also go to making many Republican voters feel better. Um, and every time I mention, though, that Donald Trump would not concede his race, I always hear from our AJC listeners that Stacey Abrams also did not concede her 2018 race. It was a different circumstances. She did not try to overturn the election. But I think when people who lose and have devoted supporters hear that they didn't really lose, it puts tons of doubt in those supporters' minds. And we didn't have that this time. Jen, I don't have the figure in front of me, but I can tell you that a majority of people in the poll responded to the question of whether they think SB 202 had an impact on how the elections unfolded, said they didn't think it made one difference or another. But the reality is people like Senator Raphael Warnock plan to continue fighting for a fairer election laws, and uh, data like this isn't going to change the minds of those who believe there still are voter suppression efforts out there. <clears throat> no, and I mean, one of the things that's going to be interesting to watch as session kind of moves forward and even the next two to four years, especially with the election of Burt Jones's LG, um, that that group of state senators um, who really were pushing um, the election fraud claims and who were, you know, sitting at the table with Giuliani and who were really, really making the efforts um, really to overturn the election results. I mean, all of those folks are now in leadership in the state Senate. And so the question is, how does that how is that going to work? Right. You know, are, are they going to continue to push that? Are they going to continue to push bills that basically kind of, um, you know, echo the, those sentiments? And I think that's going to be really, really important in, in terms of, of what the public thinks and believes in terms of our system here. Tammy, I'm really out of time, but I'd give you and Eric about 30 seconds to respond to all that. <clears throat> So as an educator, um, I think that, you know, to, to combat some of the, the, the challenges with SB 202 is to really educate the public about, you know, the, the voting law itself, uh, what to do, when to do it, how soon to turn in that um, mail-in ballot, how soon to request it, um, go in early vote, and hopefully those types of efforts can be ongoing and systematic. Eric? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just add, um, I think that, you know, the poll results from the AJC also, we need to, you know, give a shout out to the leadership. I think the Secretary of State has done a great job 
uh, you know, really focused on the integrity of our elections. I also think to Jen's point about those lawmakers that may have been aligned with the former president, I, I don't, don't think that those are going to be big issues that they're going to be focusing on right now. Well, we will watch and uh, report that out. Thank you all so much for a great show. Eric Tannenblatt, Patricia Murphy, Jen Jordan, Tammy Greer. Thanks for starting us off so well this week. We're back again with a brand new show tomorrow, of course. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.